part of my thing I think I'm here to do on the earth is, is push this um, awareness that, that life is ever changing um, in, in all species. And as a result of that, I, I, I think that's where resilience comes from. And I think it's a huge pump for my belief and hope. is Process Peace, conversations about the work behind the work with diverse artists from all over the globe. My name is Ruby Josephine Smith, and not only am I the creator and host of this podcast, I am a choreographer and contemporary dance artist based in Tangier, Morocco. This is a podcast in process about process. I am not only fascinated by the creative process itself, but how to have better and more meaningful conversations about it. Join me in digging deep into what it is that drives a person to make art. Whenever I'm planning an episode of this podcast, because podcasting is a medium where episodes get reshared and are always live on their platforms, I always wanted to make sure that these conversations have as much of a sense of being timeless as possible. I, I kind of like the idea that in 10 years time, if podcasts are even still around, people could listen back and still find wisdom and inspiration in these artists' words. That's why I've generally shied away from news and current events that could date the episodes, but lately that hasn't really felt possible. What we are experiencing currently is going to echo throughout the future in ways that we can't even predict right now. So it felt important to start having conversations in this moment about this moment, in order to be able to look back and remember what we are all currently processing, individually and collectively. That is why when a family friend introduced me to Ellen Kelsey and her work, I knew I had to have a deeper conversation with her about her unique, evidence-based hope perspective of the world. Ellen Kelsey is an award-winning author and internationally recognized thought leader for hope and environmental solutions, living in Victoria, BC, in Canada. Her newest book for adults, Hope Matters, Why Changing the Way We Think is Critical for Solving the Environmental Crisis, will be published in October 2020. Her influence can be seen in the hopeful solutions focus of many of the powerful institutions who are her clients, including the Monterey Bay Aquarium, the Rachel Carson Center for the Environment and Society, the Rockefeller Foundation, and Stanford University. As an adjunct faculty member of the University of Victoria School of Environmental Studies, she is consulting on the development of a solutions-oriented paradigm for educating environmental scientists and social scientists. Ellen is passionate about bringing science-based stories of hope and multi-species resilience to the public, and not only as a popular media commentator and speaker, but a best-selling children's book author and a feature writer and podcast host for Hackeye Magazine. Her most recently published book for children, A Last Goodbye, just came out this past week. You can check out all of her work at ellenkelsey.org. In this both timely and timeless conversation, we talk about Ellen's journey of being a lifelong writer and what led her to make children's books specifically, as well as how to use books and art as vehicles for larger narratives and heavier conversations. We get into her research process in writing a book and her view of the intersection between poetry and science. I love the way Ellen speaks about reframing the doom and gloom narrative of the environment to one that is more hopeful. She elaborates on this concept and talks about how the same shifts of ideas can be applied to our current reality, which is the COVID-19 pandemic. She shares what is bringing her hope at this time, and I have to say, I left this conversation feeling much lighter and more hopeful as well. I hope you love this episode as much as I do. Here is my conversation with Ellen Kelsey. Ellen to the Process Peace podcast. I'm really happy to be talking to you today. Thank you, Ruby. I'm thrilled to be here. Yes. Um, yeah, it's such a strange time to be doing this, but I thought it was really necessary to continue these conversations. And I think you're going to be the perfect person to talk to right now, just about how we can be more hopeful during these weird times and work through it a little bit. Well, I'm, I'm pleased to do it. And uh, I agree with you. I think proceeding, I, I mean, we're always in times of change. This is a particularly exactly. profound moment, but I, I think we always are. And so I think it makes a lot of sense to continue these conversations. And it's through conversation mm -hmm. that we, we know what we think. 
Exactly, exactly. That's how we, I think we have to process all of this. Um, well, before we get into all of that, kind of our present, um, I always like to go back to your past to begin. And I always ask the same question of everyone, which is, what is your first memory of creating something? Let me see. I don't know if this is truly my first memory, because I, I do believe that our <laughs> memories are shaped by the stories our parents told about us and all of those mm -hmm. kinds of things. But I really immediately remember being under a kitchen table uh, my mother, when she would clean our house, I have three sisters and we lived in a very small house. And so when my mother was cleaning, she would get everything up off the floor. So I remember the chairs were on top of the table. I can smell a bucket full of some kind of cleaning detergent and being <laughs> under the table with uh, scissors and paper and mm -hmm. cutting things. We used to do lots of collage and uh, we always had a lot mm -hmm. of um, things to make art with. So I just have a memory of being under a table with like frenetic cleaning happening around me and uh, yep. <laughs> enjoying making something in the midst of I love that. <laughs> kind of the calm creativity and the chaos of the house. <laughs> yeah. And I think I, you know, when I had my own kids, uh, they're now, uh, you know, I have a son who's 20 and a daughter who's 17. Uh, okay. But they, when they were young, I, I really thought it was so important just to have materials around to work with, you know, mm -hmm. like whatever those are. Uh, so, you know, you'd go past some place, you find an old piece of wood hanging out of the, you know, somebody's dumpster right. and then you'd be like, that could be something, you know, like that, yeah. that sort of rat, rat fashion collecting of things. But uh, Exactly. Yeah. It keeps your eyes open to everything. I think that's so important when you're young and to keep that as you grow up. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's ironic now, my daughter, I live with my daughter and she is a minimalist. So it's uh, yeah. really funny for me to have gone from being a, sort of a place busting at the seams with material uh, and uh -huh. then to now um, I have to account if there's more than 34 objects in the house, you know, <laughs> so oh my gosh, in both yeah. cases, I think it's, uh, it's very creative because the restriction is. is also creative. Do you know, it really forces Absolutely. me to think about, um, what can I do with the materials that I have around me now? So it's not, she doesn't make me do that. I just uh, Right, no, I, but you can learn a lot from it. That's yeah, interesting. I like both. I like both. Yeah. yeah. When did um, writing become a part of your life? Have you been a lifelong writer? Yeah, I always was a writer. Hmm. And uh, again, thinking of my mother, my mother used to write me poems from my dog when I was at school. And so I'd come really? home and find a poem that my dog had written, which meant quite a lot to me when I was in grade four. You know, it was really yes, tender to me. And I do remember being in grade five and um, I had written some story for school and my teacher had handed it back and on it she had written, um, you are a writer. And I, wow. I, it was like I had got the Nobel Prize or something. I was really, so clearly it must have mattered to me, you know, that, yeah. and that acknowledgement. And even though like everyone, I think took me a very long time to now say I'm a writer, you know, mm -hmm. I'm of course, quite a bit yeah. older than grade five, but, and, <laughs> yeah. but the, I think I've been writing forever. And I do know when something is really meaningful to me, mm -hmm. my favorite thing to do is to write an email to a friend, um, just expressing the feeling of that meaning or to mm. when I was uh, younger and letters were more common, I would write a letter to somebody, you know, I think I mm. like to, I like to work from that moment out rather than mm. think of a, a large scale piece, which has been a real challenge in my life, you know, to write yeah. PhDs or to write uh, nonfiction full length books or right. uh, it's not my normal way of working my normal way of working is from a feeling and then outward mm -hmm. yeah and I love that because it's very it's creating discussion between you and someone else it's not just journaling and keeping it to yourself it sounds like a part of it has always been this back and forth between people absolutely and I think I I would absolutely say that's true for me I am a I'm a collaborator mm -hmm. through and through deeply mm -hmm. and I I find I I guess that's why I love doing children's books. I love doing children's yeah. books because I, I think wanted to ask how you came to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's a, it's an interesting story because I was writing. Um, I'll tell you a longer story than a shorter story, but I'll make them both not okay. too long. <laughs> so I I when I was um, in my late teens. I was uh, doing a series of jobs that I really did not like. Like I worked for Wendy's mm -hmm. Hamburgers and my job was to clean the bathrooms and cut onions. <laughs> it's a oh, terrible gosh. job. And so, you got really the short end of the stick. It's a bad job. And similarly unpleasant jobs. So I ended up, yeah. um, I lived in Toronto at the time and, uh, mm -hmm. I, and the Toronto Zoo was just opening. And I remember riding my bicycle one day, which was quite far from where I lived, 
uh, just to go out and see it. And when I was out there, there was a door that said education department in, in the zoo. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what could that be? I'd never heard of such a thing. And of course now zoos and aquariums and museums have massive education departments. But at the time, that was a rather new idea for a zoo. And so as mm. a teen, I knocked on the door and I, I just, you know, was curious to see what was in there. And Maribeth Switzer, who was their first education director, was a wonderful person. And she quickly sort of asked me if I wanted to volunteer for her. And so I was doing some mm -hmm. things like that. And then I went off to university, but I continued to write for them, uh, you know, just teacher's guides and that sort of thing. And so yeah. when a publisher came to the Toronto Zoo wanting to do um Again, there, there used to be these massive encyclopedias, you know, Grolier encyclopedias, right. you know, World Book yeah. of Knowledge, all those things. Anyway, they wanted to do an animal a series um, and they were looking for writers. And so Maribeth said, oh, well, I have this young woman who's at university, but she lo loves to mm -hmm. write. And so I ended up writing those books in my uh, very early 20s. And that, that, was, that was great um, as an experience yeah. of trying to I guess it, it launched me into creative nonfiction you know so you're trying to write okay, yeah. always um, science-based but in a way that was more engaging for people and and then picture right. books came much much later I was writing nonfiction at the same time I'd work um, I've worked a lot in exhibits and education and communications departments uh, for the mm -hmm. UNESCO and you know international organizations and also for um, aquariums and places like that um, but I always kept writing going at the same time for children and for adults. Okay. Uh, but anyway, I was a nonfiction writer for children and I had written this huge book. It was about 120 pages or something of nonfiction about how we are nature, you know, just all these comparisons. Mm -hmm. And the yeah. publisher that I was writing that for was sold when a new editor came on. And the new editor picked up this book, which was all written, but not yet published and looked at it. And then she contacted me and she said, you know what? I think this would make a great picture book. And I mm. thought, oh my goodness, I've never written picture books. You know, plus I've just yeah. written this giant book. <laughs> you know? right. Yeah, it's a whole other thing. Yeah, but I, I also, I, part of what makes me love being a collaborator is I love the, I like that kind of challenge, you know, like I, I, it was, yeah. if someone's confident and they say you should try this and I think, wow, I wonder what that would be like. So, um, and that book became your stardust, which is a, what, what happened for me as a process is um, nonfiction books are mostly explanatory. You know, you're explaining right. ideas that you've taken. And I always do first person interviews with scientists because I think kids should have access to the most current information they can possibly have. Um, mm -hmm. But picture books are exploratory. You know, they're provocative. Mm -hmm. they, should, uh, they should be informed, but they're not trying to explain how it all works. So that was a big switch for me. And um, I actually think it's a far better book because of, her idea. It's a much better book. And, yeah. and that, that launched me into thinking about what's a science informed exploratory experience. Um, and, and it was fun that, you know, I have done some other picture books with cartoonists. And the thing I learned from cartoonists is cartoons, um, they, they have to be sequential. And in science writing for adults, you're always qualifying things, you know, in this context, mm -hmm. in this way, at this moment, this is true. But in right. a cartoon, you can't do that. You know, you have to right. you have to have a cause and effect. So again, you have to push yourself to think, what can I confidently say um, that is not untrue and yet is not um, equivocating in the way you would as an academic writer? And I su suppose right. that's also part of my process. I'm still an, an active academic, and so I yeah. I can find it a creative challenge to think of different kinds of writing for different settings and why why does context matter so much in academic writing because it does um, mm -hmm. and how might I loosen that in a, um, a book for a three-year-old you know and yet still have the idea of um, that I'm still interested in ideas around you know the agency that exists in other species or or why how we move beyond this doom and gloom mindset that's been such a right. dominant narrative in our lives those kind of things yeah Exactly. No, I love how you speak about that. And I'm curious, do you feel a sense of creativity in the other parts of your work? Or does the writing kind of bring the creativity into it all, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think I find creativity in all my work. Yeah, all mm -hmm. of it. I, um, because I think that anytime you're interacting with somebody else, uh, whether that's another species or another human, I, I think that mm -hmm. there's always therefore something that wasn't there until you are 
together with them or, you know, their right. ideas are informing your ideas. Um, right. So I, and I try very hard when I'm teaching, um, I try to teach everything outside, for example. And, and by teaching, oh, nice. even if you're teaching media studies, but you're outside, um, then, <laughs> then you're in a context in which you never know what's going to happen, right? That, right. It's like, an uncontrollable could environment. Fall out of a tree, or <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, or it yeah. gets cold, and when it, all of a sudden it gets cold, it changes the dynamic, right? Like, how do we huddle? Right. What do we do? Uh, how do we pay attention when we're cold? Or sometimes it forces us to move mm -hmm. more, and therefore we right. see different things. So then you have to change how you were going to interact. And I, so I, I think I'm really interested in context setting, like when I think okay. of planning um, uh, courses, for example. I think about. Mm -hmm what's the context in which we will now explore this idea rather than what's the content I'm trying to tell. Like, I don't think it's so mm -hmm. much about telling. I think it's about contextualizing. Um, so, so for example, um, in, in open space, I don't know if you know that facilitation technique, but it, the idea mm -hmm, behind yeah. open space, right. Is that people set their own agendas and they host their own meetings and that sort of thing. So right. if I want a class, um, which I do to be multi-voiced, then I'm looking for processes such as that, where uh, the amount I speak should be equal or less than the amount that mm -hmm. everyone is speaking, you know, those kind of ideas. Right. Yeah. I'm just curious. I wanted to know a little bit more about your history. How did you really come to work in environmentalism? Is there kind of, um, was there something that sparked it or was it kind of growing um, throughout your childhood? Or I, I'm just kind of curious about that before we get more into your current work. So thoughtful. Um, I think <laughs> I, I think I've always been pretty crazy for other species. I, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've taken in the last year to sleeping outside, for example, because I absolutely love waking up to the dawn chorus or feeling the wind against my skin or hearing, mm. uh, you know, there's different smells that occur in the evening. And I'm very lucky. I live in a city, but I live in a, um, I have a backyard. And so I think I was always that kid. You know, I lived in a, mm -hmm. a new subdivision part of Toronto. So it was the kind of place where houses were being built um, all the time, you know. And so it was kind of torn up landscape, but there was a ravine okay. of the creek. I always like to go as far as I possibly can. So I would leave the house with my dog and try to mm -hmm. hike as far as I could get following that stream. And by following that stream, even through, you know, a pretty broken up city uh, landscape, mm -hmm. you can see a lot of things, you know. And so yeah. I think that that really started it. And then um, I was lucky again, I'm, I'm older, you know, I'm 50, 58 now, I guess. And at the time yeah. that I went to university, nature interpretation was just kind of taking off as a field, you know, that parks okay. would have people that would be naturalists. And um, mm -hmm. so being a naturalist or bird watcher or whatever had been around for hundreds of years, probably more than that, of thousands course. of years, I don't know. But the profession <laughs> of being a nature interpreter was just kind of happening. And that, And so at the university I happened to go to, they had a a large arboretum with a nature center and I ended up working there and I just, you know, I, I loved it. And then because I loved that so much, then I um, applied to every zoo and aquarium in North America uh, by letter mm -hmm. when I finished university and I happened to get a job at the Calgary Zoo. And um, that was a great job because the fellow I worked for, Brian Keating, mm -hmm. he, he's gone on to do, he's a, a yeah, media personality in, in terms of okay. wildlife interpretation and conservation. And he was one of these larger than life, tiny people. So if you had a good idea, you know, he would jump up. If you had a great idea, he would literally jump on his desk. You know, he was the most enthusiastic, <laughs> great first, first real boss, you know? And so we did, yeah. I, t I had a ton of freedom in that job. And so I, mm -hmm. I think it was the mix. Oh, and I should also say uh, when I was at university, I was started a master's in science, um, mm -hmm. but at the same time I was a bartender and I realized I was a much better bartender than I was a, a lab scientist. And I really see a much better. And it's because I'm, I'm, I adore the other than human world, but I'm a real people person too. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I started to find this emerging field of environmental communications and nature interpretation. And all these fields were mm -hmm. kind of being formed right at the time that I was being formed. And so it's yeah. been, it's been kind of a nice journey because I'd say social sciences, which I'm super interested in, you know, how we mm -hmm. construct um, the narratives we live by and how do we communicate them and, and you know, mm -hmm. all those sort of things really rose within the last 
30 years to prominence, you know, at the same time yeah. as I was working. So it's, it was a lucky thing. And I, and I think that's yeah. true all the time. You know, like I think about all the new professions happening all the time. Right. Yeah. yeah. People kind of have the ability to form their own yes. careers and yes. job descriptions and everything now. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. So all of those influences, I think, were there. Yeah. yeah amazing. Um, I'm curious about how you chose picture books and how um, it seems like a lot of your picture books really facilitate discussion, kind of like what you were talking about earlier, kind of um, discussion between parents and kids and between children and their educators and children and the world around them. And I wonder if you could just speak to that a little bit, especially in your new book that I'm, is it out yet already? The um, a Last Goodbye? Yeah, it comes out on April 20th. So it's, uh, oh, very yeah, soon. we're like a week ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, exciting. <laughs> yeah, no, well, and I can use that one as an example. Um, so one of the yeah. things I think is a great joy of being older is that you, you get to watch ideas shift over time. And so mm. not that long ago, I, well, I guess about 10 years ago, 2009, I wrote a book on, on whales and I was looking at whales and the culture of whales because uh, mm. killer whales, for example, have many different cultures. So killer whales that live off the coast of BC, there are three different cultures. One is entirely wow. fish eating, they eat very specific salmon, uh, another is, and different pods <laughs> eat different salmon, uh, you know, another is entirely uh, marine mammal eating. And then there's a third that does something entirely different. And scientists say wow, that between those first two, they haven't interbred for more than 40,000 years. You know, they have a true cultural uh, divide between their integration, even though they're biologically similar animals. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. true also of humpback whales, killer whales in different parts of the world. So I was quite fascinated with this cultural difference. But at that time, mm -hmm. e even in 2009, it was hard to, to um, scientists would call it the C word. <laughs> you know, they, they wouldn't feel <laughs> yeah, comfortable okay. saying culture, you know, because culture, culture. was a human concept. That's completely okay. different now. In 2020, culture is yeah. very well uh, established, discussed people, you know, in, in natural history, we talk about it a lot. So these ideas shift. And so and then emotions within other species, uh, you know, mm -hmm. used to be something that wasn't talked about that much because of the uh, age of enlightenment and, you know, the dominance right. of behavioralism and, you know, all of these uh, social constructs end up determining how we see the other than human world. Um, yeah. So anyway, as emotions have been much more readily studied for other species, uh, I started noticing more and more coming out in the scientific literature around how other animals process grief and rituals they might participate in around death. And I, I thought, you know, yeah. And I thought it'd be very interesting for children because what I really am always interested in conveying is that other than human world is full of um, capacity and agency mm -hmm. and resilience and intelligence and social uh, connection and relationship and all of the things that exist yeah. within the human world exist within, you know, there are 8.5 million other species on earth that's you know that's, that's a lot of other lives exactly um, yeah. you know and that's just species that's not individuals you know so yeah. so it seemed that it would be wonderful to to bring some of that science um into a book for children uh that explores mm -hmm. um how we how we support one another at this tender time of death and after death mm -hmm. uh, you know when we are dying and so i tried to write that book so that you could read it either as you experience it, you know, when it comes time to say our mm -hmm. last goodbye, I will and do these things. So it's in first person, um, but yeah. you, but it could be an elephant. It could be a gorilla. It could be a child. It could, it could be an elderly person. It could be anyone as the, as the yeah. eye. And then I tried to yeah. inform it by all these different species. That's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> no, I, I really love that because I um, I love the idea of art as a vehicle for conversation. I think that's something that I'm even trying to do in my own personal work. And while it look may look completely different than a picture book, I think that's so important because it's this kind of, it's telling your own personal truth or your own personal beliefs and studies in your case. And I think that's just such an important thing yeah. to do. Yeah, I think so too. And I think conversation is a very democratic idea, right? You're, yeah. You're... Uh, offering something up but you're not mm -hmm. you're not trying to confine it to this is the only way to read that and and I've been quite enjoying mm -hmm. the early reviews for that book I can see that people are reading it in quite different ways you know mm -hmm. they'll, they'll who they think that I is or who they you know and and I think that's yeah. wonderful 
you know, like that, yeah. that feels right to me that it's not, it's not just the way I see it. It's the way they right. choose to, uh, how it relates to them. And, and again, with picture books, I think because a wonderful editor and a wonderful um, book designer and this mm-hmm. really wonderful illustrator are also yeah. you know, very much at play. It's, um, mm-hmm. it's probably as it would be in, in any, any artistic field, right? There are so many right, others yeah, who add to it and make it. Yeah. yeah. And Soyan Kim, who does, uh, she's done all the illustrations for those four children's books that I did. For I Owl saw Kids. they're beautiful from the yeah. little clips that I've seen. Yeah. yeah they're really, really interesting. Beautiful. She makes these wooden frames and then hangs thin filaments of thread and then hand paints wow. or, um, and then cuts out, you know, images that hang so they're actually mm-hmm. moving dioramas. Uh, uh, but they're shot as flat surfaces, you know, and uh, she dries flowers in her, from her garden and weaves them in and she does all that kind of thing. But she uh, really thought, uh, I think she was emotionally affected by this book and chose Mm -hmm. the evolution of the illustrations. They're very spare and somewhat somber, uh, still very Mm -hmm. engaging for children, but muted in a way at the beginning of the book. And then they, they really take on more life as the book progresses. So, you know, these are all things you, you may or may not know this, but most children's book authors and illustrators never meet. Yeah. My, my mom is actually an illustrator. And so, yeah, yeah, right. They don't meet. Yeah. Yeah, They, they just work through the same editor and the editor is, I know it's such a funny thing. And yet you're in such an intimate relationship with each other. Yes. Yes. And I can see why they do it because it allows freedom, but I also Mm -hmm. am extremely glad that I now know Soya and Kim and, you know, (laughs) right. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, and we didn't discuss any of that, but I really can see her doing that. And then when she explained later why she did it that way, I, Mm -hmm. I, and her capacity, for example, to illustrate dead animals in a children's Mm. book in a way that feels, um, one of my young friends said to me, it's, it's a, a, it has a sad, it gives a space for sad, like it's a sad book, but it's not mm-hmm. a scary sad book. It's, mm. it's a, and then it doesn't stay sad, you know, and I think right. a lot of that is happening because of her beautiful mm-hmm. capacity as an illustrator. That's amazing. That's so interesting, too, because it just adds this whole other layer to your artwork, your writing, yes. and it really makes this whole complete work. I always have found that really fascinating with children's books. Yeah. Me too. Me too. And I, I, you know, and I do have a tremendously good editor who Mm -hmm. um, I have a tendency to interview people like crazy for my books. And then because I've learned a lot, then I underwrite. And so it's nice to have people who catch your things you always do, you know. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So what is the process of researching a book like for you then? Because, you know, I think with for children's books, I mean, the writing is so brief that I think people don't always realize all of the research and all of the work that goes on behind the scenes just to write these short, brief lines. It's yeah. really, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think I really love to research and I really love yeah. to interview scientists. So I probably do more of that than is required, but I like it. <laughs> sure. um, yeah. So I think probably my process now, because I'm been around for a long time is I, I, I might like, for example, in that book, I, I have known about whales and whale culture and how whales support each other around death um, mm-hmm. for probably 20 years, you know, um, or right. have been following that as an emerging idea or examples where researchers have seen it. And so in some ways, I'm collecting content all the time. And then mm-hmm. when it comes to write something, I... I will check back with that person and interview them to see, you know, what's the current state of thinking around that at that moment. And so right. even though I think that ends up as one line, you know, in there, right. there's, <laughs> yeah. there's this, I have the confidence um, mm-hmm. to put that line in because I feel like uh, in, in, in some ways it's become very like taken for granted in some ways in the, in the mm-hmm. people I know, uh, do you know what I mean? Like it's got yeah, some yeah, the, the credibility there. So I think for some reason that really matters a ton to me. I feel very mm-hmm. strongly. Um, I, I guess because it's interesting in children's books often too often, I think ideas around the environment are held as fixed facts mm-hmm. rather than seen, you know, I, I, I think this is quite important in all of my work is that like we would never talk about politics um, 
without checking in at that that day you know what it, right. like you know what i mean yeah. if we were reporting on politics kind of yeah. Around it. yeah because mm-hmm. we recognize that political ideas shift that you know that mm-hmm. uh, the state of play or or sports right. or anything right that that it has a currency right. and if you're not current you're not correct but with the other than human world we're very comfortable too comfortable uh, mm-hmm. picking up and reading something about beavers that was published in 1982 and then just sticking <laughs> it in. And, yeah. and I think that's really a problem because both mm-hmm. the state of knowledge about beavers, you know, has, yeah. <laughs> has probably changed since 1982. You know, it's quite a long time ago. And yeah. also the state of ideas about science and about how the other than human world lives is constantly shifting. So again, mm-hmm. I think I'm really interested. I, part of my thing, I think I'm, here to do on the earth is is push this um, awareness that that life is ever changing um, Mm -hmm. in in all species and as a result of that I I I think that's where resilience comes from and I think it's a huge pump for my belief in hope. I love that all of that research goes on behind the scenes just to create one line or one statement that you make and it actually it brings to mind um poetry a lot mm-hmm. i used to i used to write poetry when i was younger it's been wonderful. a while wonderful you should do but it again <laughs> i should it's something i've actually been thinking about it during this quarantine something to yeah. pick up again yeah but it's the same thing where there's this whole thought process and this whole editing process and research process that goes on to create maybe one even maybe three words together yeah and but in order to really feel confident about putting those words out there they have to have a certain ring of truth for you and integrity of where that comes from and you know that's kind of the artsy side of it but then there's also the scientific side of just you know doing the research and I I just love that parallel and I I also I read you know just clips of your children's books from what I found and (laughs) uh, and you're and so but your your writing is so poetic and I actually um something I've been doing during this quarantine is organizing all of my quotes that I that I've written down from various books and there was one that I just wanted to share with you because it made me think of your work um I don't know if you've heard of the physicist um Carlo Rovelli yes I don't yes yeah so I read his book um reality is not what it seems and he writes our culture is foolish to keep science and poetry separated there are two tools to open our eyes the complexity and beauty of the world i love and, that oh yeah isn't that beautiful and it just made me think of your work it's so lovely and i'm really yeah. touched that you thought of me when you heard that i'd love that and and i will tell you i had an amazing poet poetry experience last year mm-hmm. um i was lucky enough to go to a, a creative center in finland called Artelis and mm-hmm. um and I went there and I decided I would I it, the, the whole idea of that particular session was silence existence and something else no I can't think of the word but anyway yeah. uh, but the idea was to be in Finland in, in the winter you know in the dark yeah. and, and I just couldn't get over I decided intentionally I was not going to go with any prepared you know project to work on or whatever which mm-hmm. I normally do you know if you have yeah. that luckiness of time you take work to do of course and yeah. or whatever combination of reasons I don't know if I just stayed in jet lag or whatever or it was just mm-hmm. the center or the right time in my life but I I just was writing poetry non-stop when I was there but in mm-hmm. such a delightful like you know you hear people talk about words pouring out full stanzas written I've never had that experience before in my life and I really had it there it was remarkably Mm. wonderful for me and and what it did for me was when I came to write hope matters Mm -hmm. I felt that because I had this body of poetry that I haven't published but that in a way captured my feelings about this Mm-hmm. I I felt really able to write a nonfiction book that, that wasn't a poetry book. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some yeah. poetry in it, but that's not the dominant voice of that book. Sure. Because somehow I thought I've said what I really want to say um, mm. in this other way, which opened up mm-hmm. the freedom to say what I really wanted to say in that way. And so I think yeah. also poetry can... Um, I, I, maybe I'm not saying that well, but that that no, knowing that you're sense. expressing in different ways, right, mm-hmm. creates more freedom to then mm-hmm. not overload yet another form. Because I, I think we can, right. at least I can certainly do that. You yes, muddy everything exactly. up because you're trying to say something that be- better fits a poetic voice. 
but you only have a nonfiction forum or something, you know? And so just having more forums or more uh, means allows you to say the same thing, but in different ways. And it, and it frees you as the speaker to say them differently. That makes so much sense. It also reminds me a little bit of, you were talking about your daughter who's a minimalist. Yeah. And for to write poetry, often you have to be a bit of a minimalist because you're cutting back and trying, not all poets, of course, but in general, it's a shorter form. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of clarifying the ideas in a way that you might not if you were just jumping into writing nonfiction. Yeah. No, I think that's really true. I think it's really true. And I think, I think for myself, I found I was still writing the same materials, but the poetry allowed me to come from a place of emotion as a foreground. Mm. Whereas I think um, some of my nonfiction work is coming more in answer to um, grand narratives or, or big public conversations, you know? Mm -hmm. And so because I had two vehicles, I'm lucky to have more than two vehicles, but those yeah. two really allowed me to say, oh, okay, now I don't have to, like emotion can come through this and grand narratives can find their way into poetry, but they're not, you know, that where you're starting a conversation, if you're trying to start in three places, it's sometimes right. it's not as rich, you know? Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk a little bit about your new book that's coming out, um, Thank you. Hope Matters. When is that coming out exactly? So it'll be released in October. And okay. it'll be released in the UK and Canada and the US all, all okay. in October. Yeah. So exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. I've only read the introduction, but I found it absolutely beautiful. Um, and I think it's so necessary. And, you know, specifically for this time that we're in right now, but just in general. And I hope it's okay. I just the very first thing you wrote in the book, yeah. I wanted to read it. Thank um, you. Ruby. You said, of course, <laughs> you said, uh, this book will not go out of date because the tension between hope and despair is always with us. And it's the first thing you read on the first page after the title. And I was already just so struck by that. Um, I think especially because of this COVID pandemic that we're in the middle of right now, it just felt very current. But like you say, it's timeless as well. And so I'm just kind of curious in general how you go about tackling such a big concept as hope in writing. Well, thank you. Thank you for noticing that. <laughs> I, I um so I think how I have come to be so interested in hope is that I, I, I am really fascinated by grand narratives. And by that, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's these, there's these things that are just taken for granted. They're so taken for granted, we don't even recognize them as narratives, you know, and we mm-hmm. know that in terms of, you know, how women are viewed in the world or how we think about gender or how, you know, we know right. narratives exist, but when, uh, when we're, when we live them, we don't necessarily see them. And I think that's where Mm -hmm. movements are always um, pushing against. Movements are typically pushing against some grand narrative that has played out in terms of the way institutions are developed or the way, you know, the way social structures are made. Um, And so what I've, what I realized over the course of my life working in uh, environmental communications in lots of different forms was that this grand narrative, two, two grand narratives really dominated uh, one is this narrative of doom and gloom. So mm-hmm. I've been lucky to travel a lot of places in the world and meet lots of people. And whenever I ask them how they feel about the environment, that doom and gloom uh, narrative is very present for them. Everywhere. Um, everywhere. Wow. I, mm. And, and yeah. <laughs> so it's, a, it's interesting. It's so pervasive. And I yeah. think it came out of an environmental movement with an ur- urgency discourse. And, mm-hmm. and in no way am I saying that the environmental situation isn't urgent and global. I absolutely know and work in that area. But yeah. the narrative of gloom and doom has all kinds of um, implications and collateral mm-hmm. damage that can actually work against engagement. You know, it's yeah. hard to stay engaged with something that you think is hopeless. Um, exactly. So I, it became an interesting thing for, for me as a person who's interested in how people engage with these issues. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other narrative that's very dominant um, was this idea of an ignorant public, you know, mm-hmm. that somehow scientists know the answers and the real issue of why people don't act is because they don't know enough or they're, they're right. informed or they're too stupid yeah. or, you know, <laughs> but, but there's a lot of work that shows that when people really care about something, uh, like if you sadly become ill, uh, you mm-hmm. often become an extremely good consumer of science. You know, you mm-hmm. learn very quickly, you research yeah. a lot of stuff. And I think we're certainly seeing that right now. People are Absolutely. Very, very much <laughs> yeah. learning and, and responding. So I, I don't believe in an ignorant public. I don't believe that at all. I don't even believe in a public. I think there's just huge yeah. varieties of, you know, 
cultures and individualism and all of these things. Mm-hmm. So to reduce it down and those are very reductionist ideas that I, absolutely. so I guess that book is a response to um, what's the collateral damage of this doom and gloom narrative and, and to think about the emotional landscape of, uh, you know, we often are very aware of, and it, and it is very timely to the situation that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of what I think is, is inspires hope is by looking at, by actively looking for trends that are moving in a positive direction mm-hmm. and by looking at yeah. spe- specificity. Now, specificity yeah. really matters. Like in this Absolutely. case, this thing is happening. In this case, this thing is happening. If you think something is, is this never, never land that never changes, then you don't, you don't see opportunities and you don't, you know, it, um, you miss out on all kinds of remarkable resilience. And when you know that you, then that allows you to say, okay, if resilience exists, say um, scientists know trees, for example, communicate, right. And they can communicate with other trees in the forest through their fungal root networks. Yeah, right. I always and love that. Yeah. It's so fascinating. And mm-hmm. I guess uh, within that, if you know that, then that impacts how forestry practices are done. Or, you know, uh-huh. Suzanne Samard, this wonderful forester from UBC who did a lot of that work, uh, talks about leaving these mother trees in place because then they have the capacity to send their energy to other trees as, as a forest is recovering. You know, so that specific knowledge matters to these bigger enterprises. Um, or if you many people have been fascinated during this COVID time while where there's much less traffic on the roads and that sort of thing, how different species are more active in their neighborhoods. And it may be that, you know, that they're seeing it because they're at home. And it may also be that in some cases, animals are more comfortable coming into the city, you know, that are already in the city, but more during. So, so there's always shifting, you know, and exactly know that then you can say, Oh, then let's look at what supports resilience. Um, and then how do we do, how do we amplify what's having a positive effect for sustainability or uh, for climate emission reduction, those sort of things, rather than hammering people with this fear-based message right. that everything is wrecked because, uh, and, and we don't do that with other things. And I've really been fascinated watching public health messaging, yeah. which has been the whole world. I, I heard yesterday that there are more reports on COVID than in any other subject in the history of the world. Wow. So like it's the most reported on thing, yeah. which makes sense. So we have a global it pandemic does. at a time it in does. a 24 seven news cycle. Yeah. yeah of but it's unprecedented. So there'll be people studying the communications of this forever. I'm sure. <laughs> you know, exactly. That's, and that's why, yeah. you know, I, I wondered, I, I want this whole podcast to be something that withstands time. Yes. So I don't always talk about these issues that are really current, yes. but I felt like this is going to be something that we're going to be learning a lot from and yes. how we react and how we interact in the moment of this, I think is so important. And to talk about these issues like hope and change and understanding that things yeah. are always changing, that's going to that's going to continue to have an impact, I think. Yeah. And yeah. I think we can get these reports so wrong when we fall in the narrative of, you know, um, hoarding or people, you know, individualism mm-hmm, exactly. versus, you know, uh, there's lots of research that shows people are uh, very collaborative and compassionate, you know, as, a, as, yeah. as, as a species, we're, we're kind of geared to taking care of each other. And when we frame Absolutely. messaging around, um, I will do this act, not just for my own health, but because I'm protecting someone else, it, it has mm-hmm. more resonance. So I, I think these messages of, of how we how we tell ourselves about ourselves and how mm. we tell ourselves about the rest of the world are uh, they really worth uh, looking at evidence based hope. I'm I'm very yeah. fascinated by what's the evidence for this claim uh, mm-hmm. from the scientific literature or the academic literature. Uh, even though hope is a, a some people see it as a feeling, some people see it as emotion, some people see it as a future orientation. Others study it as um, something that's intrinsically within us you know there's all mm-hmm. kinds of notions and and ideas about hope but uh yeah i myself am intrigued like when you see reports like that i think oh i bet that's just falling into a narrative you know and then i right. then i want to yeah. see i'm so happy when those things get corrected you know <laughs> yeah so. no i love that idea of reframing the narrative yeah and to be aware of it so to critically mm-hmm. analyze I, I think hope comes from critically analyzing these never never land statements um, mm-hmm. 
So right now I've noticed, for example, like carbon emissions are quite down, you know, and air yeah. pollution is way down. Uh, mm -hmm. And one of the amazing things in public health is that when air pollution drops, they see a positive impact within like 48 hours. It's really, really? a dramatic increase wow. on health benefits of these decreases. Um, mm -hmm. But typically when we're reporting, I think because COVID is a terrible thing, it's a really, mm -hmm. people are suffering. And so, yeah. so there's a tendency to, to then say, but you know, it'll all go back terrible or something, you know, and I, right. I just think we're going from one terrible thing to another. So, yeah. yeah. And what they're doing is they're taking an evidence-based account of what's happening at the moment and mm -hmm. partnering it with a fatalistic prediction about the future. And, right. and that I think should be challenged. I think, I yeah. think we don't, you know, we, we can, I don't mind an evidence-based argument of why someone might think the future will go a certain way. Fair enough. But just right. these statements of fatalism, I think is, is really, so in my book, yeah. I'm trying to challenge some of these ideas of how we look yeah. at things because we certainly know of, of resilience in other species, Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, and, and we see it and it has an amazing impact. And we have such a belief that fear is what drives people to behave. And, and I think it, that's another interesting thing, different uh, countries different uh, have taken different approaches around fear, the use of fear in their communication around COVID. And I think um, it's very hard to sustain oneself in a constant state of fear. It causes Absolutely. a lot, lot of anxiety. It causes a lot of uh, despondency, mm -hmm. causes a lot of mental illness problems. And I think yeah. um, it matters to have a sense of, um, you know, what is being done? How are those things right. helping? A sense of hope for exactly. Yeah, you this know. won't be forever. Yeah. Exactly. And that's yeah. not false hope. It's, it's, uh, it's just not falling into a, a doomy statement. Yeah. Even exactly. in the most difficult times, mm -hmm. there are, um, there are things that are happening that are really worth paying attention to and, and mm -hmm. amplifying. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been really interesting speaking with other artists during this time as well, because I think the whole fear narrative and just fear being such a big part of everyone's life now can play a lot of different roles in how people respond creatively. Mm -hmm. um, and I know a lot of people have felt very paralyzed by it and unable to create during this time. Mm -hmm. And I've even felt a little bit of that, but maybe not for the same reason of being fearful, but of just feeling like I really am responding in this moment and just reacting to everything mm -hmm. that's happening around me instead of being able to produce and create from that place yet. So that's just been a really interesting conversation that I've been having with a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. No, and I think I, I, I think what's really important is you can't have hope or um, positive things without you know, embracing a full range of emotions. You know? exactly. And so I think yeah. we're very <laughs> capable of holding you know, deep worry and um, uh, gratitude. And you know, we can hold yeah. multiple emotions at the same time. And I, mm -hmm. I think, I think that's really important. And and yeah. one doesn't have to just be chipper, <laughs> you know, right. like that's exactly. it's you not, can't right now. It's impossible. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think it's, yeah. I think honoring grief and loss, and uh, you know, both hope and anger are mobilizing emotions. Um, mm -hmm. They're both powerful emotions. They're part of what gives us motivation to continue on. Um, mm -hmm. So we don't have to not be angry about something right. to be hopeful yeah. um, exactly. you know? so and and yet a lot of times in our you know putting statements down around climate change for example it's as if we have not well recognized the emotional implications of that constant messaging you know mm -hmm. and that what what does prove to be stronger is if people have more information about how communities have come together and mm -hmm. made a positive difference with details yeah. about why that was. And that's why I'm really interested in solutions journalism. So mm -hmm. solutions journalism network um, has been going now for I think almost a decade. And the idea is not that you tell, tell only positive stories. It's that you, mm -hmm. you don't just critically, um, you know, rigorously report on problems. You rigorously report on societal responses to those problems. And so you say, what, what, has, what have people done around gun violence that has had a more positive effect than might have been expected? And what mm -hmm. went into that? And what's unique about that location? Or what might be generalizable about it? And it means you have to right. report over a longer time frame. But I think I'm, I'm very on side with that um, approach. And, and I see its application for the environment very strongly. 
And mm. I will say Solutions Journalism has been doing fantastic reporting on COVID-19 mm, as a mass collective of journalists all around the world. So people mm. looking for um, solutions-oriented reporting around this pandemic, it's, mm -hmm. it's well worth looking at. Yeah, that's something I'd like to look into because, I mean, I'm making all of these parallels to the art world. And I love it. No, speaking. I love it. Um, yeah. Because it's something I, I've thought about a lot in my work and then even more now so um, is that I'm, I'm, I'd say I'm quite a hopeful person. Um, yeah. And I think often that can be confused with being constantly positive or constantly optimistic. Yeah. And I'm someone who, with my own personal work and the work that I'm often attracted to in other artists, is work that does has the ability to go and research the dark places, but comes out with some sort of glimmer of hope on the other side and doesn't leave you with this, like you said, like this doom and gloom feeling. Mm -hmm. And so I just love hearing about your work and the kind of research side of that and thinking about maybe how I can incorporate that more into my own work. And it's just, it's bringing up a lot of really interesting parallels for me. Oh, I love that. I love that. And yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, one thing that makes me, um, I, I agree with you. And I, I think it is interesting that the behavioralist model of hope looks mm -hmm. at people as um, as higher hope people or lower hope people. Right. Like it sort of okay. puts you into a category and I, I don't ascribe to that at all. I think uh, mm -hmm. I think we we may have predispositions in a certain way, but we mm -hmm. we we have this full range of emotions yeah, and and, exactly. and and can be just as crushed by something. Um, mm -hmm. The thing I think I've really learned in my life is that, is that um, it's very valuable to actively look for things that are moving in a more positive direction, no matter mm -hmm. what the circumstance, um, because they are, that's, that's not the typical way that most, most people get their knowledge about the environment, and I would say certainly about this health crisis, through the media. And we know through lots of journalistic studies, lots of them all over the world, that that is not the dominant way that things are reported. And so if you know that, then you're just well equipped to say, okay, I know that I'm mostly going to hear about problems, right. but that is not the full story. And so I have to actively look for, I have to be aware of those problems. Absolutely. That's valuable. But I have to actively look for where those other trends are sitting and they exist. And I would say access to them is now so much better than it was even, you know. And I did a thing back in 2014. I co-created this hashtag, hashtag ocean optimism. Yeah, I saw yeah. that. Yeah. And I purposefully did that because it was really hard to source examples of environmental solutions and successes uh, because also our, our academic journals are very heavily oriented, um, at least in environmental things around problem analysis. So anyway, we thought, what if we could crowdsource and share examples from all over the world? And, and it just, it went viral very quickly. It's now over a hundred million shares. It's very interesting. And so, so again, that's, that's actively looking. And, and I, I would say if you wish, it's really fun to follow that even for a week or two and yeah, just see how it impacts to. your feelings, you know, just seeing um, actual evidence-based things that are not fitting that frame of doom and gloom how does that impact you and your yeah, feelings i love that what is bringing you hope currently oh so many things i mean i i i do feel very hopeful about these drops in air pollution and carbon yeah. emissions and everything i mean i think i wish it wasn't for this reason but it's a that's a remarkable thing um i, I guess i'm i'm in awe of the capacity of of humans to respond in ways that they are collaboratively around the world, collectively through governments. I'm uh, hopeful about that. Individual acts of compassion and, and kindness that I see people demonstrating. The unstoppableness of spring, you know, where I live is, you know, it's, you can, it's happens, you know. And I suppose I'm also hopeful in a, in a way around the disparities in the world, the huge social injustices, the inequalities are very profoundly obvious in this pandemic. Yeah. And they, a lot. they have been there and are horrifying and terrible. And I, I'm always hopeful when something is elevated even further into our awareness of, you know, it's undeniable. We, we know these things as a, as a world. And I think it's such a 
gloomy thing to be hopeful about, but I think it's really right. Important. But the awareness is starting to be hopeful in itself. Yeah. 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 And I think people yeah. are, are really seeing that. You know. yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I have going on a whole other note to kind of wrap up uh, one question that I always like to know, and this is also interesting to know since we're all in kind of self-isolation or quarantine at the moment is, <laughs> yeah. do you have any um, daily creative rituals that help enhance more the creative side of your life? Well, I, I'm, I, yeah, yeah, that's so funny. I, I don't think I have something that sounds like the thing it should be, but I, I just like puttering. I'm, I, so, you know, like right now I'm, so I told you I sleep outside. Mm-hmm. And with the rainy weather in Victoria, um, many rats have chosen to come under the deck where I like to sleep. And I was <laughs> fine about them being under the deck where I like to sleep. But in, as of late, they've taken to running across the bed where I'm sleeping. Even though I try to embrace them as very intelligent social animals, I don't really enjoy that. So I, I understandable. <laughs> on a daily basis, I am creative, though, because they are so intelligent and so capable and so so. Right now, my creative enterprise is sorting out how to keep my capacity to sleep outside and keep these rats alive, but not walking over my bed. And so I'm right. always like figuring out new fencing and different kinds of rock movement and none of it's effective, but it's keeping me very uh, mentally alert. And I, so I do that. Um, but so it's so funny. I also have a, every that. two days, I have a date with my good friend who's 10 uh, on mm-hmm. Zoom and we do, we, we make things together so we write together we uh, make art together we dance together we um, oh that's great we just have a regular creative time together and those kinds of things and then I I do I really love to do art so I've been doing portrait uh, drawing that kind of thing just even though I'm not very skillful I enjoy it very much yeah I think it's about the the practice of it that's the most important thing exactly and I love that this time is also creating new rituals I think for this period I've definitely been doing a lot of new adding a lot of new habits into my my schedule so yeah um I've been starting to sketch again as well I've I've sketched on and off for my whole life and I've started to pick it up again so that's That's been really nice yeah well the last question I have for you is what is one thing that's inspiring you currently where you are in your own creative process or just your process with your life's work at the moment well at this exact moment I just watched last night um oh no I'm not gonna get it right Grace Lee um Grace Lee Boggs Okay. who was an um, Asian-American, but hugely involved in the civil rights movement of um, African-Americans in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And okay. so I was watching her, a biography on her last night, and, and she really resonated with me because so much of how mm-hmm. she sees the world is how I think I see the world. But she said this great thing, which was, you know, um, a rebellion is not the same thing as a revolution. So a mm. rebellion is like, because I'm very motivated, I should take a jump back and say, I'm hugely motivated by the global movement around climate change. And I'm, some might fear that the pandemic will just erase that. I don't think that's true. I think we see that Generation Z or Z is very committed to climate change and it's an ethic. It's not, not only a movement, it's a lived value. And so I was thinking about the rebellion around climate change, which we're really seeing all over the world. And, but what Grace was talking about is the revolution, which is when you, you have to think of a new thing, you know? So you're not just rejecting the old thing, but you're, you're coming to the new thing. And, then, and that requires not only mass changes in social structures and how we do things, but mass changes within ourselves. And so I think this COVID time for many of us is a huge time of reflection of who we are, uh, what we value, how we envision the world we wish to be in, how we support the people we care about and people we don't even know. And so I think um, when I heard her speak about that, I thought, wow, this is a remarkable time with all this energy of climate change response gearing up. Another thing that really inspires me is that, you know, one out of every 10 people on earth now lives in a place that in 2019 declared a climate emergency. And those climate emergencies mean um, actual steps to drop emissions. So I think we're in a very, very fruitful time to see how we come out of this um, in a way that I, I hope is more sustainable. Yeah. 
That's big inspiration and big hope. So I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so great to talk to you, Ruby. Thank you so great much. Great to talk to you too. Um, well, just before we finish, um, where can people find more of your work online? They can just look. I have a website under my name. It's www.ellenkelsey.org. Or my name is spelled funny. It's E-L-I-N. Yes. Um, so yes. because it's spelled funny, I'm pretty easy to find. Just Ellen Perfect. Kelsey, but spelled funny. Okay, yeah. perfect. Well, I'll share all of that in the show notes too, so people can find Thank it you. easily. Of course. It's been such a joy talking to you. Thank yes. you so much. I really appreciate your questions and where we were able to go together. It was lovely. Thank you. For links to connect with Ellen and see more of her work, head over to the show notes at rubyjosephine.com under the podcast tab. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram or Facebook at Process Peace and get these episodes delivered directly to your inbox along with a whole lot of extra inspiration by subscribing to my newsletter, The Sunday Pancake, Letters in Reverence of Creative Rituals. Head over to rubyjosephine.com slash subscribe. If you've been enjoying Process Peace, I would so appreciate you choosing to support this podcast in any or all of three ways. One, leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Two, share your favorite episode with a friend or on social media. And three, make a contribution at buymeacoffee.com slash rubyjoe. Thanks again to Ellen for sharing this thoughtful conversation with me. A huge thanks to Cooperly Smith for creating the original music for this podcast. And as always, a special thanks to you for listening. Thank you.